We are continuing our series on the book of Ephesians. One of the most uh, prolific or greatest, if not, of the greatest orator in the 20th century, I believe, is Martin Luther King Jr. And especially in his speech in 1963, I have a dream. I don't think anyone could listen to him without being stirred by his, his words and his passion. And in his, in his speech, he mentioned about, I mean, who can forget those words? He said, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but instead by the content of their character. And then he goes on to say that he goes on to be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. And that was delivered in about 58 years ago. And then he went on to say, he said, I must say to my people who stand on the warm threshold which leads into the palace of justice, that in the process of gaining our rightful place, we must not be guilty of wrongful deeds. Let us not seek to satisfy our thirst for freedom by drinking from the cup of bitterness and hatred. We must not allow our creative protest to degenerate into physical violence. And five years later, Beatles, John Lennon, wrote another song called Revolution, probably, and said, use you say you want a revolution. Well, you know, we all want to change the world, but when you talk about destruction, don't you know that you can count me out? And sadly, and somewhat ironically, uh, Lennon was murdered in 1980, leaving behind his dream, which has become something of a poor secular anthem. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. Imagine there's no possession when a multi-millionaire telling you that. Um, the world has no doubt has this thing that is rising that we are aware of, all this kind of protest, this kind of inequality that is spreading across the world. And there's a quote recently I received by an American called Sonia Renee Taylor. This is what she said about reflecting on the situation of COVID. She said, I think this is a really, in she said, we will not go back to normal. Normal never was. Our pre-corona existence was not normal other than we normalized, normalized greed, inequality, exhaustion, depletion, extraction, disconnection, confusion, rage, hoarding, hate and lack. We should not long to return, my friends. We are being given the opportunity to stitch a new garment, one that fits all of humanity and nature. We are, given, we are being given the opportunity to stitch a new gar garment, one that fits all of humanity and nature. Maybe God is gracious to allow things to happen, to press the reset button, so that all of our values in some sense are being challenged, all of the things that we all held so dear into our hearts are being have, have a second look at it again. And when we look at the book of Ephesians, 
chapter 2, we are looking at a story of Paul trying to say who we are as Christians. That God has done the most beautiful things in our lives that tear down every wall and in the church as what Christopher Ash, when he talks about the fact that God has provided in the authentic local church here and elsewhere, all the local church, all believers, the genetic blueprint for a broken world remade. The genetic blueprint for a broken world remade. And that is translated that when people encounter God's people in a local congregation of a church, they are supposed to get some kind of sense of what God is planning to do ultimately when sin and tears and sorrow are no more. When in a new heaven and in a new earth, all that He has purposed will be brought to pass. But we are left asking the question, why is it that consistent attempts to tackle all this kind of inequality, injustice, all these kind of problems that to deal with hostility and disunity sooner or later flounder and fail? You can have all kinds of organisations, you can have UN, you can have peace treaty, you can have all these kind of things, but yet nothing actually works. It's a matter of time, everything crumbles. And I think the answer to that is very straightforward, at least the answer the Bible gives to it. It is because we fail to recognise, we fail to accept the gravity of our condition as human beings. Human being, as we consistently say, is that we were made by God for a relationship with God and yet separated from God on account of the fact that we have doubted His goodness, we have rejected His wisdom, we have rebelled against His authority. And so we have underestimated the human condition and therefore we come up with all kinds of things, legislation, education, the superficial remedies, for fixing things are inevitably destined to fail. While education is vitally important, legislation is clearly necessary, but neither one nor both of them together are able to deal with the basic issues of the human heart. And therefore, the scripture is very clear on that. The only way forward is to examine and know who we are in Christ the condition that Christ had come and redeemed us, the human heart, then and only wonderful things can come forward as the church, local church comes together, able to be a good model in that sense. And so when we come to Ephesians chapter 2, here, Paul is going to unpack this for us. Basically, if you... If you Oh, I have difficulty just turning this on. I don't know what happened. Can you help me? Uh, Amen. I don't know why I can't move now. Yep. All right. From verses 11 to two, uh, uh, 22, there are three points to it. It's very clear. Uh, it's before, how, and after. Paul is saying what you were like before you became a Christian. What you were like. And then what actually happened. And then now what happened but I'd like to use more of a biblical words to capture this text, and that is three words, art, A-R-T, alienation, reconciliation, transformation. So as I work through this text, 
you can see these things making sense as Paul begins to tell the Gentiles, Christian, who you were before you became a Christian, helping them to re remind them and then telling them what actually happened. And then now that that happened, what now? So let me let's just read the text to you and then I'll unpack the bit based on the three points to bring across this story. He said, therefore, remember... Paul is trying to invoke some memories among the Gentiles. Remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship in Israel. You were foreigners to the covenants of the promise. You were without hope without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were, brought, were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one, and, they have, and has destroyed the burial, the dividing wall of hostility. By setting aside in His flesh the law with its with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in Himself one new humanity, and out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which He put to death their hostility. He came, He preached peace to you and who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through Him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers. You are fellow citizens with God's people and also members of His household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus Himself as the chief cornerstone. In Him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in Him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. Three points. The first one is alienation. Paul is describing to the Gentiles what you were like. In one word, you were basically alienated. He said, remember. Sometimes the scripture tells us to remember some things we have to forget. And in this instant, it is necessary to remember. The whole concept of communion is to remember. It's to remember of what Jesus died for us on the cross for. It's to redeem us and to save us. And Philippians chapter 4, talk, chapter 3, talks about forgetting what behind. Some things we have to forget. Some things we have to remember. And in this instant, Paul is wanting to evoke memory among the Gentiles, Christians, reminding them again and again what they were like before. And I think sometimes it's good for us to revisit that as well, that we need to remind ourselves what was like before we embrace on a on cosmic level, what it was like before we become Christian. And so Paul here was trying to invoke some memory among the Gentiles and say, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and you were called uncircumcised because God chose the nation of Israel 
nation of Israel to represent Him on earth, gave them laws, make a covenantal relationship with them, and circumcision is a sign of the covenant with them so that they can represent Him on earth. He said, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and caught uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, remember that at that time, second time he's calling them, remember. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ because you're Gentiles. You're not the chosen people of God. You don't have the law. You don't have that the covenantal relationship. You were separated from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship in Israel. You were foreigners to the covenants of the promise. You were without hope. You were without God in the world. And put this together, you have a picture of our exclusion. We were cut off from the Messiah, cut off from God as King, as well as all of His promises, cut off from hope and from God Himself. And so Paul wants the readers of this letter, the Gentiles, to feel the significance of their exclusion, not only from Israel, but their exclusion from a covenantal relationship with God and all of its benefits. One commentator by the name of Hendrickson puts it memorably in this succession of words. He said they were Christless, they were stateless, they were friendless, they were helpless, they were hopeless, they were godless. And in two words, they were far off. As in verse 14 tells us, they were far off. In Christ, you were once far off. You were so far away. Well, you may be sitting here wondering what these circumstances that are so far away has to do with us. In some sense, I think we, we all know that God's Word was written so that what happened in the past will be able to teach us in the present. And so the description of the Gentiles in many, many sense here is simply a representation of our natural condition. We were dead, as we have just heard from last week from Pastor Caroline in chapter 2, we were dead we were disobedient, we were condemned. It says, you were dead in your transgressions and sin, you, and in which you used to live, where you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the, the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. We were dead, we were disobedient, we were condemned. And so when we think in terms of the predicament of humanity, and we think of it in relationship to alienation, what we discover is that not only are we alienated, as it were, on the vertical sense, vertical axis, but it's also on a horizontal, not just vertical. And of course, that was the condition or the issue that Paul was addressing here. These individuals from a Jewish background and then the newcomers, as it were, from the Gentiles' background were separated from one another. There were a deep-seated hostility between them. It's not too much to suggest that they hated each other and they were hated by one another. That there was a wall of hostility that existed separating them from one another. And we'll come down to it in verse 14, the dividing wall of hostility. And if you study the temple that there was this, uh, we know the Holy of Holies is only for the high priest once a year, and then the holy place where for the priests, and then outer side is for Jewish people, and then further down is for women and the Gentiles. 
And between the court of the Gentiles and the court of the Jewish people, there is a war. There is a war preventing them from going to a thick stone war that was five feet high. And we have discovered subsequently notices that were on that burial between the Gentiles and the Jewish court with these words written on it. Transpassers will... It did not say, okay? It did not say transpassers will be prosecuted. But the sign actually said transpassers will be executed. So if you cross, you will be executed. So the predicament of the folks was that they were separated from God by that curtain that hung in the temple. And they were also separated from one another by that war that existed between them. And Paul is pointing out that, as we are about to see, that only in Christ that is ended. Only in Christ is this ended. It is Jesus who breaks down all these walls of hostility ultimately because no amount of education, no amount of legislation can change the human heart. There are many foreigners, many overseas students that I, I encounter. Somehow, when they are overseas, away from their home, away from family, away from everybody watching, the real person emerged because no one is watching you. And true character is that, isn't it? It's what you do in the dark when you are not accountable. No one is watching. And so no amount of education and legislation can change the human heart. And that is why all this kind of tension of inequality, all this kind of thing cannot be solved from more legislation. Christianity says, no, it is the problem of the heart and that must be resolved first. As Paul's here trying to point out to us and spelling out to Jewish and Gentiles, hey, 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 look at it, you're alienated. But it's now moving on from before and then second point is reconciliation. What must happen? What actually has happened? Paul is trying to paint to us that what actually happened that is able to blend these two now into one? It is reconciliation. It is what actually happened. It is the building. It's almost like this building, isn't it? What it was like and what it was now. And then there's a process of one and a half or two years where everything is in a mess. They say in the middle of the project, it's always spelled disaster. Everything is in a mess, in a process. And, and it's almost like that. The Paul is trying to paint to you what it was like. And then now what happened? The process of Jesus making it possible. And so in verse 14 onward, it's focusing on this beautiful story of what Christ has done to make it possible to tear down the wall of hostility. He said, but now, now you all this, you were stateless, you were Christless, you were hopeless, everything, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away, because you're not under the covenantal relationship, you have no law, you have nothing, you were far away. You have been brought near now by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one, and He has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in His flesh 
the law with its commands and regulation. Jesus make a way, make do away from law as a requirement for salvation. Because Jesus has fulfilled that. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. Everyone is needed. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Here you see this beautiful story of Jesus coming here to smash this wall, this dividing wall, this hostility that separates people between the Jews and the Gentiles by reconciling the two and in that two, making one new humanity. And so church in that sense should be like that. Church is a local community, the blueprint of this beautiful story about people coming to know the Lord and new society, a new community to the world. And so it's beautiful, in some sense, it's beautiful to have a church with all kinds of people, different types of age group. And one of the purposes of the church is to show to the world what it's like when God's reconciling power brings people together who would otherwise have nothing to do with each other. We are like a pilot project showcasing God's reconciling power. That while elsewhere, country, nations, race cannot unite, the church then it becomes a model to display, a showcase to the world of God's reconciling power because of Jesus Christ, because we encounter Jesus Christ, because we are saved by Jesus Christ. And therefore, transformation begins to happen inside of us. And therefore, it's beautiful to have a church of different uh, age groups and different uh, races and all that because it shows great reconciling power is at work among us. You know, I was in Bible college and we studied a subject called church growth. And one of the church growth theory is about studying how to grow the church. And one of the principles that we learn is what is called HUP. Homogeneous Unit Principle um, by this Donald McGavin and, and Peter Wagner. And they came up with this thing called HUP, Homogeneous Unit Principle. He said, in order to grow something, it's very simple. Put everybody similar together. Where they have lesser barrier to cross, lesser adjustment needed to be done. Put all the same yuppies group, same type of age group, family with race, same race, you know. And, and then you have lesser thing to, 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 to cross barrier and, and, and it will attract the same type of people and then it will grow very fast. HUP, homogeneous unit principle. Youth service, this service, family service and all that, it will attract the same types of, of people in the sense. And that's how you grow it, by being... being 
being wise, being clever in employing certain types of dynamic into the, into the environment. And one uh, preacher plainly stated, he says this, he said, building a church on edge appeal, whether old or young, or stylistic preferences, is as contrary to the reconciling effect of the gospel as building it on class, race, or gender distinctions. Negatively, when the church segregates people according to generation, race, style, or social economic status, we exhibit our disbelief in the reconciling power of the gospel. And positively, one of the prime evidences of God's power to our segregated world is a congregation which transcends cultural barriers, including age. So the gospel is the good news that God reconciles us to Himself and also to one another. That is the most beautiful things that it can break down all kinds of barriers. It breaks down all the barriers and makes us into a new humanity in which all the divisions that separate us are destroyed. And that is what Paul is basically trying to say to the Jewish and the Gentiles Christian. They were having so much difficulty because the Jewish people now and the new covenant coming, breaking down the, the, this law that is required to be the people of God. So there should be no division in Jesus Christ. We are one. The blood is stronger than the barriers. Black, white or yellow and every other ethnicity are one in Christ. Whether you are liberal, labor or independent, we are one in Christ. Whether you're vegans and hunters, we're all one in Christ. Whether you're Australian citizens, foreigners, immigrants, illegal immigrants, we're all one in Christ. Lower class, middle class, upper class, and one in Christ. Educated and uneducated, we're all one in Christ. White collar, blue collar, no collar, we're all one in Christ. Homeless, renters, Homeowners, home developers, we're all one in Christ. Former missionaries and former criminals, we're all one in Christ. We are not just all forgiven, but we are all united in Jesus. There is power in Jesus. There is power in the gospel. This is the real extreme makeover, gospel edition. Makeover. And that is what Jesus has accomplished for us. Alienation, reconciliation, and here finally, transformation. Paul now went on, moves on to say, as what you were, God has done something beautiful in Christ of reconciling, and now as a church then, it becomes a transforming agency to the world. And therefore, Paul went on to say, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but instead you are fellow citizens with God's people and also members of His household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus Himself as the chief cornerstone. And as you can see here, there is a progression here Paul's made. He begins by saying that you are you are citizen in God's nation. Yeah? He said you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but you're fellow citizens. And then he make another level, he progressed another le level, become closer, not just citizen, you become a member of the household. 
From citizen, now you become members, more intimate. And not only it is your member, it becomes tighter. Together, we are, he said, we are together, we are the temple in which God lives. We become, we, of course, we can't see the brick here because it's been plastered. He said, we become each of this block in this place that God dwells. We place a part, we become tighter, closer. The brick must be closer, tighter. Seal it all together where God, the Holy Spirit, God dwell, the presence of God dwell in the temple that each one of us are part of in the largest sense. You are a living stone in God's dwelling place. We are part of where God has lived all throughout this earth. Alone, you are just an isolated stone, but together we are where God Himself has chosen to live. So Paul tells us that we are not strangers and foreigners any longer. We are citizens of the same kingdom. More than that, we are members of the same family. More than that, we are components of the same building, standing together in Him with a closeness that is permanent, that is powerful, that is precious. Some parts of these buildings are Jew and some parts are Gentile. I came from one place and you came from another. We have differing paths, differing abilities, differing interests, and ways, and yet, in spite of our differences, we have been brought together in Jesus Christ and given unity in Him that is stranger, stronger than blood. We have been given a unity that will outlast time, in, time itself. Kingdoms will fail, will fall, families will die out. The building God is building with stones like us will stand forever as a testimony to His glory, His grace, His power, and His honour. Those are the metaphors that Paul uses. In Him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in Him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. So we become the God's dwelling place. And because of that, there's no more barrier. Charles Jefferson once described the difference between an audience and a church. He said an audience is a crowd, but a church is a family. An audience is a gathering, but a church is a fellowship. An audience is a collection, but a church is an organism. An audience is a heap of stones, a church is a temple. And he went on to say, preachers, he went on to say, preachers are not to attract an audience, but to build his church. I want to close off this. There was a story about a rabbi. A rabbi, at the end of his lesson, he asked his students, he said, how do we know when a night has ended and a day has begun? How do you know that? Immediately, the students thought that they grasped the importance of the question. There are, after all, prayers that can be 
recited and rituals that can be performed only at night, and there are prayers and rituals that belong only to the day, and it is therefore important to know when the night has ended and when the day has begun. So the brightest of the students offered an answer. Well, when I look out at the fields, and I can distinguish between my field and the field of my neighbours, that's when the night has ended and the day has begun. And then the second student offered her answer. When I look from the fields and I see a house, and I can tell, uh, and I can tell that it's my house and not the house of my neighbour, that's when the night has ended and the day has begun. And then the third student offered an answer. When I can distinguish the animals in the yard and I can tell a cow from a horse, that's when the night has ended because the light has allowed me to recognize that. Each of these answers brought a sadder, more severe frown to the rabbi's face until finally he shouted, No, no, he said, No, you don't understand. You only know how to divide. You divide your house from the house of your neighbor. You divide your field from your neighbor's field. You divide one animal from another, one color from the other. Is that all that we can do? Divide, separate, split the world into pieces? Isn't the world broken enough? Split into enough fragments? No, my dear friends, he said, it's not that way at all. The shock students look up into the sad face of their rabbi. And one of them ventured to ask, then rabbi, please tell us, how do we know that night has ended and day has begun? And the rabbi stared back into the faces of his students with a gentle voice responded, he said, you know, how do you know? When has the night ended and the day begun? He said, when you look into the face of the person who is beside you and you can see that the person is your brother or your sister and when you can recognize that person as a friend, he said, then, finally, the night has ended and the day has just begun. You know, my dear friend, before I close, there is no institution more equipped and capable of bringing transformation to the cause of reconciliation than the church. Because Jesus has broken down all the barriers. And it is the same for this world. Because, because they don't have Jesus, and therefore the power to break down the war, the hostility in their heart, is not there yet. And therefore, the gospel is ultimately the final powerful message to break down those wars. Education is never sufficient. C.S. Lewis often says, education only makes you a cleverer devil. Legislation, while it is necessary, it has limited power to change the heart. And therefore, only Jesus can do that.
may this church be that, that beautiful uh, platform, this place. As Paul beautiful says this in chapter 2, break down all this kind of war that we can be a powerful model to this world that's fragmented with many divisions of all kinds of things. Father, thank you for your word. We are reminded that Christianity looks stunning to the world and most emulates Jesus when our identity and unity in the gospel are more foundation no, than any other identity. Our broken world needs to see this vision lived out in new and fresh ways in the church. Lord, Christians are like snowflake, frail. But when together, they can actually stop traffic. So we pray that we will do our bit as Christians in this part of the world, this church in this part of the world. We have beautiful church here with beautiful people of different ethnic background, different educational level, different social economic status. We are in that position to represent the beauty of the reconciling work of Christ in us. May you always unite the church. May we take our faith seriously. May we follow Jesus, follow Jesus, follow his way, allow the cross to be the center of our being, center of this church. Thank you, Lord. As we sing this song together, may we once again rededicate our allegiance to you because only when our allegiance is to you, only when Jesus is our focal point, there is no hope in uniting the world. So we thank you for, for this song, this simple song as we stand and sing together now. Let's sing, shall we? And I'd like to lead you to sing in this beautiful, simple chorus that uh, we learned many years ago. I've decided to follow Jesus. Can you please stand and join me? <laughs>